a chaotic anarchist revolution where they will murder rich people and take their possessions and split them up, up amongst The feminine use of aggression tends to be reputation destruction and council culture is a manifestation of that. And Reconstruction of the United States into a communist organization where the anti-fatalities. It's the form of bullying that goes after reputations, essentially, and that's a feminine form of bullying. Organization where the Antifa combatants sit on top of the pile and keep the rest of us enslaved. It's a feminine form of bullying. And keep the rest of us enslaved. Greetings, friends. I'm Arnold Schroeder. This is Fight Like an Animal. You can find episode bibliographies, texts corresponding to some episodes, and my contact information so we can talk about it all and figure it all out at againsttheinternet.com. And if you want to support the fever dream-like exertions that go into making this podcast, please check out patreon.com slash biological singularity. It was only toward the middle of the 20th century that the inhabitants of many European countries came, in general unpleasantly, to the realization that their fate could be influenced directly by intricate and abstruse books of philosophy. Czesla Miwash, The Captive Mind in West Africa, in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was a minor epidemic of complaints of genital shrinking or outright genital theft through magic. Here's from the Nigerian Vanguard Online from the 7th of September 2001. Panic has gripped residents of the Plateau State Capitol following reported cases of disappearing organs, ostensibly for ritual purposes. No fewer than six of such cases have been reported in the last one week in different parts of the state capital, involving males and females whose organs allegedly disappeared upon contact with organ snatchers. A middle-aged man was almost lynched yesterday along Rawang Pam Street after he allegedly stole a man's private parts through remote control. The victim allegedly felt this organ shrink after speaking to the suspect, who reportedly asked for directions, following which he raised an alarm. Passers-by who had become alert following reported similar incidents in the past few days immediately pounced on the suspect, inflicting serious injuries on him. The timely arrival of the police who fired tear gas canisters to disperse the irate crowd saved him from being lynched. The police later took him and his alleged victim to the station for further investigation. However, police officers contacted said they were still collating details of the various incidents when contacted. The situation is sending jitters down the spine of most residents with people now refusing to respond to inquiries from strangers for direction or for time. Some residents have reported to superstitious measures such as clipping a pin to their mid-region or putting on antidotes to the charms of the organ snatchers. So I think that I would be condescending 
somebody, some of you, if I was like, what you might ask, does this all have to do with left authoritarianism? I think some of you would say like, yes, I'm, I'm going to make the case that one of the many dimensions of what somebody might be talking about if they say left authoritarianism is really just truly content-free group psychology, right? It's the reality that they are content-free in the sense that the belief systems, the particular subject matter of the persecutory fervor that groups develop uh, is free to vary more or less infinitely, or at least, you know, along any psychologically salient lines. Like there's a vast, vast array of subject matter that may be incorporated into these processes but that the dynamics are the same regardless of the content of those beliefs, that there are, you know, tendencies towards uh, out-group persecution and a sort of like purification process, a, a, a process of identifying group members who inadequately conform to the standards of the group or are supposedly, you know, an intentional insidious threat to it in some manner who must be eliminated in some fashion or another. And that these dynamics are, you know, if we say we travel in time to Mao's China and it's the Cultural Revolution and there's somebody who... I, you know, in, likes some art that's supposedly bourgeois or whatever, and there's a bunch of people, you know, there's a struggle session going on, and there's a bunch of people breaking them down, and maybe they're even going to physically attack that person, right? You know, like, there's some extent to which, sure, the particular rhetoric in fashion at that particular moment in that particular group has some, like, left nonsense going on, but it's not really true that's what, that what's happening is this uh, unique expression, this expression of a uniquely, like, left authoritarian psychology or belief system or anything else. So um, that's going to kind of be our approach. What we're going to do, we're going to take this, this like, uh, dual approach where, in part, we're going to use this paper that got published in 2021 in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology called Clarifying the Structure and Nature of Left-Wing Authoritarianism. And that'll be, I, I guess, like, I'm not going to say that's the, our guide for this journey, because that'll be when we just plunge headlong into a vast, meaningless chaos when the world ceases to make any sense or mean anything at all. And we'll kind of use that to examine basically the state of the literature so far as I can tell, but also, you know, to make a, a broader argument that academia has failed to clarify the nature of political situations in ways that if we just subject uh, academic findings to the simple singular criterion that they have to be useful to navigate the world and make people effective political agents. Um, and I, I won't say that, you know, that's entirely true. I mean, obviously, I cite academic papers about politics all the time, but we, we're getting into a territory where 
I don't think there's much to be said for what's out there, basically. Um, and, you know, and to make the broader argument, which is going to be my next outlined episode for varieties of scientific revolution, I think anyway, I don't always know what I'm going to do next. I think that's probably abundantly clear to anybody who's been listening for a while. But, um, the, you know, we're going to like make this broader argument that there's just a desperate need for an alter academia that, ex- you know, for a social sciences that exists outside of the uh, the reality of the academy and ideally exists in collaboration with people in the academy who are willing to somewhat question the relationship between what they're doing and power. And I know that supposedly there's whole realms of academia that do nothing but that, but I don't mean crazy literary experiments in, you know, in denying the existence of truth. Like, I don't mean that style of alternate academics. I I mean, an academia that is very focused on actually, you know, like hammering out generalizations about, about the human experience, again, that can actually be useful for people navigating politics but that isn't agnostic, uh, to, you know, on the relationship between the academy and power, because that's one of the things we'll see in this paper is that one of the many reasons that it seems utterly incoherent is because they are unable to do that. And yeah, I mean, the, another reason to do this, to go on this particular journey is just that, you know, recently on our great adventure together of this podcast, I, yeah, I've been talking more and more about, you know, this question of whether and in what senses and in what context political labels are useful at all. And um, the, the left label for as much as, you know, like I've done a life of politics without really using many labels at all. And I, I think it actually can be quite useful to like kind of collaborate and communicate with people who are already like really, really, really more or less on your team, but that the historical accrual of different meanings of leftism at this point is a reality that is very difficult to transcend in practical terms for communicating with a broader with a broader segment of the human population um like daniel and i talked about in part one of the interview that i did with him you know like the one of the one of the meanings of left that is very difficult to transcend is the reality of like 20th century totalitarianism um and and the the deep associations that you know, you can tell a lot about politics by what words mean to different people. Like we can tell a lot about somebody's politics by what words mean to them. And for many people, that's what that means. And then I think the more recent uh, and we, you know, we're going to get into this because this isn't the same thing. Um, and there's an incredible tendency among supposedly very serious people, including the authors of this paper to conflate these two things, you know, but but. For a lot of people, what left means now is somebody having a freak out about how language was used and how that was like a form of violence to them, right? And that, you know, 
so and that's another meaning that's actually very difficult at this point to transcend so there's this kind of question that i think is really totally fair to ask in this age you know when when left means so many different things to so many different people and let's be real there's people you know out there on the internet right now who are claiming that label who are justifying regimes like putin's and, and like modern hyper-capitalist china and all the rest um there's a real question about whether it isn't better to be more fluid with some of this terminology, like the extent to which it's an encumbrance rather than an actual aid to comprehension. And, you know, and more broadly, just the sense that I have that being able to change the terrain, to change the terms in some significant way is actually really helpful, that our opponents would be uh, in a lot worse shape if we could reframe things more often. And that's one of the senses in which the ascendance of the right over the last however many years has really been evident in their capacity to do exactly that. That's one way in which they've been winning. Um, you know, and if we could just set the terms, like if we weren't wedded to terminology that has centuries and centuries of baggage associated with it, we, we might do a little more winning a little more often. Um, so, you know, in one sense, this is like another way to examine these questions by looking at some of the adverse meanings of leftism, some of the non-egalitarian meanings. And then ultimately, though, like, you know, I've I've just built up this body of theory looking at the biology of hierarchy and how there's a significant sense that, you know, that I have that political psychologists have that often comes out of the explicit definitions people give of their politics of right being like a hierarchical uh, outlook on the world associated with behavioral rigidity and you know we have talked about how that is a cross-species phenomenon how hierarchical outlooks and behavioral rigidity and conventionalism and group conformity um, are, are deeply interrelated phenomenon. But then if we, if we look at like what we mean, like just kind of generally intuitively, what is left authoritarianism or like, what are the situations in the world we associate with it? It's, it's like a lot of hierarchy and behavioral rigidity. And so at some point for the theories that I've been presenting to be valid that, you know, this, this is one potential sort of like crisis that they have to endure is is the realities of societies like the Soviet Union. Um, and so we need to address this and make some sort of distinctions for any of this stuff to really make sense. Um, but I will say, for as much as I don't think the, the political psychology literature um, does a great job of grappling with left authoritarianism, the reason that these meanings have endured and that, you know, right wing and authoritarian have like some pretty significant conceptual overlap is, is because the metrics that are used to to measure right wing authoritarianism, like Altemeyer's RWA scale, actually have great predictive power 
not just in, you know, what kind of person in the United States votes for a right wing monster, um, but but also, you know, like cross culturally, like the RWA scale is good at predicting, say, which Muslims uh, believe that all Israelis must be exterminated and everybody else must convert to Islam, um, you know, but also who in America wants to go exterminate or subjugate all Muslims, right? You know, it's a, it's a pretty valuable tool for understanding a lot of behavior and perception. Uh, quoting from the paper, right-wing authoritarianism, which is characterized by obedience and deference to established authorities, adherence to socially conservative norms, and strong approval of punitive and coercive social control, arguably remains the gold standard for conceptualizing authoritarianism. In contrast to RWA's prominence in the literature, there is scant systematic evidence for the existence of left-wing authoritarianism, a putatively allied construct that describes authoritarianism in service of left-wing outcomes, for instance, as in the case of the Weathermen. Let's bookmark that. For instance, a Google Scholar search for the phrase right-wing authoritarianism returns 12,700 results, while a search for left-wing authoritarianism returns only 635 results, the first of which is a paper titled The Myth of Left-Wing Authoritarianism. Remarking on this asymmetry, Altemeyer captured many psychologists' skepticism concerning LWA's existence. Quote, I think I have not found any authoritarians on the left because, if there ever were any, most of them have dried up and blown away. You don't have to be much of a weatherman to know which way the wind has been blowing for the past 25 years. Wah, wah, wah. Um, but you can maybe see how we're already like trending towards chaos uh, or, or at least a lot of uncertainty, like what, you know, cause now we have to be like, what is authoritarianism? If as this paper does the paradigmatic case study that you're going to introduce the concept with is the weatherman, I, you know, which I, I, I just don't know. I, I don't, I don't know if, if they're authoritarians or not. They, it's almost like one of those situations where you have to ask like, well, does somebody have to have power to be an authoritarian, it's it's a question. It's a question that these people really systematically refuse to engage with at all in such an interesting way. So this paper, you know, goes through, it sets up the sets up the problem, examines you know examines the state of the literature a little bit, and starts introducing how they conceptualize left wing authoritarianism to some degree. Um, and they talk about in an interesting way that they to present the, the their way of looking at it is they talk about their the hypothesized relationships between this new psychological construct that they're generating LWA and existing psychological constructs, which you know just gets into this general sort of disclaimer whatever way of understanding any any of this stuff where you're looking at pen and paper questionnaire result based psychological literature like all these psychometrics um are 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 ultimately fuzzy it's exactly the case that 
it would be ridiculous to say they're not measuring something. It would also be ridiculous to say we know exactly what they're measuring. Um, the, the boundaries between them are very fuzzy, you know, a, as evidenced by the, the strong intercorrelations that exist between them. And so they're hypothesizing some intercorrelations uh, with other psychometrics. I thought, interestingly, uh, openness, you know, from the big five, which is so predictive of political orientation, they just predict like an exactly totally neutral, like a, a 0 0.00 Pearson's R correlation coefficient between LWA and openness. Um, and, you know, there, so there's a bunch of other like of those kind of personality, they have like a personality category and then they have a cognitive styles category i think that this is to the greatest degree that they are on to something it's here um so cognitive style dimensions like confirmatory thinking dogmatism epistemic certainty need for closure intellectual humility these are are uh, constructs that they imagine will have something to do with left-wing authoritarianism. I think that might be kind of true. When we are talking about LWA as a distinct psychology, which is one of the many meanings that LWA might have uh, that are important to segregate, uh, you know, and then the other... The other uh, categories that they get into is... is where we might start to strongly suspect this paper isn't going to make a whole lot of sense because it's stuff like free speech suppression, moral disengagement, partisan schadenfreude, political intolerance, and partisan violence. And then sure enough, when we get to their principled focal constructs targeted during test construction, we find concepts that might make perfect sense to me to put into a psychometric of left-wing authoritarianism like cognitive rigidity and dogmatism. Uh, you know, we find these in conjunction with things like anti or reverse hierarchical sentiments defined as desire to foment social, political, and or economic revolution by force. And we find lethal partisanship, rationalization of harm towards political opponents. And this is where we can see, so this is exactly what I mean when I say that, the, you know, there's some, there's some really, for all the fabulous diversity of worldview that is allowed within academia to such an extent that it's actually a totally chaotic landscape of heterogeneous utterly irreconcilable beliefs, you know, particularly within the social sciences, um, there really is some ideological discipline that goes on. Um, and we'll, we'll talk so much more about it in the Four Varieties of Scientific Revolutions episode, but um, this is a sense in which you can see that ideological discipline. Is, and, we, and we really have to ask, here, here we seriously have to get into a whole, like, what is authoritarianism? Or even more broadly, like what are the relevant dimensions in understanding social and political arrangements? And I would argue that one of the very best frames, even better than hierarchy versus equality, is just the level of coercion present within the interactions between the members of a society. 
And I don't really know how to define authoritarianism other than there being a whole lot of coercion coming from some kind of centralized authority. I, I, don't, I don't know what else in practical terms, like that's what's actually salient. That's why it matters, right? And you can see here how the way that they are setting this up is to imagine that if you support violence in furtherance of your politics, that must mean you're on some extreme fringe of either the left or the right or somewhere else on the political landscape, but that if you support this society more or less as it is in its large-scale structural features, uh, you supposedly don't believe in political violence. I mean, really let that sink in. You know, in this society where, where more people are in cages than in any other society in the whole atrocity-filled history of the human adventure, you know, it's, it's really, really unclear to me how, but this is, this is a reality that you see over and over again that liberal, like Western liberal democracy types and, and the very serious people, I think in some cases it's not just like a disingenuous rhetorical trick. Like they really seem to believe that they both support the police and that they're categorically opposed to violence. I mean, it's just so crazy. It's, it's such a crazy thing to be like, oh, if you break a window or you, or you think it's good that somebody else did, uh, then you support violence. Or in some other part of the political spectrum, like you support some mass shooter, you know, like some, some racist kid who went into a Walmart and shot some people, then you support violence too. But if you support there being a standing army, you know, and the police are like one of the biggest like military presences in the world that just goes like just like wanders around looking for people who are getting high to put them in cages, then you don't support violence. Right. And so this idea like we're all we have already descended into absolute chaos, because if you're unwilling to acknowledge that everybody who engages in politics supports violence liberal like liberal nonviolence protesters who like claim you know a deep moral commitment to nonviolence are still trying to pass laws that will ultimately be enforced by you know the police with guns and things like that um and so th this idea that there's this like very distinct like niche marginal psychology of a person who believes in violence and that the rest like us reasonable people need to figure out what what that is and what's wrong with them you know we're we're already lost we're already just completely lost and so let's 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 arise let's we have descended pretty far at this point already so let's uh let's uh you know like ascend into the light of day and and into an account of left authoritarianism that has a hopefully a little bit more meaning than this so the first thing that i i, I would say we need to do to try to understand left authoritarianism at all that this paper does not do it conflates these these different meanings entirely 
um, is that we need to separate it into, I think, three different things, which is uh, a distinct psychology of a left authoritarian, you know, just like somebody who orients towards something that is left authoritarianism, um, a distinct kind of politics that may or may not have ever existed anywhere in the world, but, you know, like a distinct sort of like political theory or like, hypo, uh, like hypothetical or actually realized sociopolitical structure. And then we need to look at historical phenomena like of, of totalitarian societies, uh, past and present, that have claimed some kind of leftist foundation for all the coercion that they engaged in. And, and this latter one is where I would say like left authoritarianism really has, you know, consequentiality. Um, it's, it's like where it's really mattered in a bunch of people's lives, like Czesław Miłosz uh, said at the beginning of this episode, um, you know, like, like where people found out in general unpleasantly that intricate and abstruse books of philosophy could affect their lives. And I think that we can do that best, like one of the most profound testimonies to what it is we're looking at when we look at those phenomena is the fact that the transition from the Soviet Union to modern hyper-capitalist Russia was not a transition of the personnel who inhabited, well, really any of the major political institutions, but of particular importance for our purposes, you know, the, the security services and the, the apparatus of coercion in that society. And likewise, neither was the transition from Nazi to Western liberal democracy uh, Germany, right? You know, on, on the Western half of Germany. Um, in, in both cases, the cops were just kind of the cops all the way through. And they, they didn't find any of those social forms, uh, you know, like so radically at odds with their fundamental dispositions towards cruelty and coercion that they couldn't just kind of do their jobs. And they are ultimately the people who made those societies what they are. Um, so I think that we've touched on this before in a couple different episodes, like everybody loves a narcissist and genocidal mystics talking about the psychology of power in different segments of the population, how um, the psychological uh, diversity that characterizes our species maps to social role uh, differentiation that ultimately shapes power, right? That there's certain types of people who end up inhabiting certain roles in society that are crucial determinants of power. And that, that very fact is a crucial determinant of power. Um, and, but we've never, we've never broken it down according to what I feel is the best scheme, which is like a tripartite scheme. Um, and that scheme is of uh, technocrats, strongmen, and narcissists. Okay. So the technocrats are exactly who I was talking about in the philosophy or schizophrenia episode. Um, and so one great book, I'll just, I'll just like break these categories down by the best books to read about them that we've already covered on the podcast. 
in most cases. Uh, so, you know, seeing like a state, how certain schemes to improve the human condition have failed is an exemplary examination of who these people are and how they see the world. But also, thank you, Frank Miroslav, and check out interesting projects like The Plausible Possible and the podcast All Power to the Imagination. Um, yeah, I'm indebted for the recommendation of this book, Engineers of Jihad, which is really useful for understanding the distinct psychology um, underlying this worldview and the, the kind of like distinct portions of the academy that produce it. And so we will go into this in much, much greater detail in four varieties of scientific revolution. But um, basically there's there's kind of like, I would say three major, if we're going to, if we're going to psychographically segment academia and we should, because it's pretty evident that there, as in everywhere else in the world, the stories that people are telling reflect some deep psychological needs as, and, you know, like ideological orientations that come from distinct psychologies as much as they reflect, you know, the accrual, the steady accrual of evidence like Thomas Kuhn so aptly pointed out. Um, so these three tribes kind of, um, I think they have like other really interesting psychological properties, but, but one convenient window into the fact that there are is that there's basically like some disciplines that skew right, some that don't skew, and some that skew, you know, I'm, I'm not even really going to say left, but like liberal in any case. Um, and engineering, law, and everybody already knows economics is pure right-wing ideology, but, you know, but economics um, all skew pretty, pretty hard right. Sciences like biology and, you know, chemistry and physics and mathematics and stuff like that don't skew. And then, you know, surprise, surprise, like, humanities and psychology and anthropology and all the rest skew liberal. I'm just not going to say left. Um, you know, but, but what's so fascinating to the point that I want to make about all this is that what's so fascinating about these tribes is that it's only the one that skews right that is really all that directly oriented towards manipulating physical reality. And the other two are more about the production of knowledge. And the, the, the tribe that doesn't skew, the math and the biology and all the rest, obviously, you know, have technical applications in the world, but they still more are about, there's a, there's a sense in which they're a, they're a pursuit of knowledge first and foremost, uh, in a way that, you know, engineering just obviously isn't. It's like hard utilitarianism. And so that is the sense in which as much as like right-wingers love to complain about how there's a bunch of leftist professors out there, it's like, yeah, but that, that, means, that means you get exactly the world that we see, where there's definitely been some significant changes in a, I guess, more egalitarian or like at least like a, in a way that reflects those people's politics more in how we say, talk about, say, race. But then if you look at the physical world, there hasn't been a corresponding diminishment in the disproportionate incarceration rate 
of people of color or, you know, <laughs> or the disproportionate, like the insane skew of the wealth distribution away from people of color, right? There's a sense in which symbolic reality ends up changing along more egalitarian lines while physical reality gets more and more hierarchical. That is that is that reality that we're talking about where psychological differentiation maps to social role differentiation maps to power, right? That is like one of the most screamingly conspicuous ways that's true is that there, you know, there are just all these people. I'm not even saying this is a self-referential statement. I'm not saying this isn't true of me. There are all these people who are trying to make a better, more beautiful, egalitarian world who are fighting on the symbolic plane, while some other people aren't really bothering to make arguments of any kind, but they just have all the tractors and all the skyscrapers and all the things like that, you know? Um, so that's that's like that tribe, the, the, the engineers or whatever, um, and while people might, you know, people might descend from a number of disciplines, their their salient their salient characteristic as much as the way that they see the world ends up being like right wing per se it's like how we talked about le corbusier the insane right you know like reactionary right wing authoritarian city planner architect or whatever um you know he was perfectly happy to come to the soviet union and talk with them about instantiating some of his grand schemes because ultimately what those people like the salient way to understand how they look at the world is in very abstract schematic terms where they see society as something that can be perfected with the perfectly rational program like the perfectly scientific vision of social transformation that they alone have the qualifications to institute onto the rest of us, right? It's a way of looking at the world that involves very little empathy, but a strong desire to move pieces around on, you know, on the chessboard or whatever, a strong desire for a massive departure from existing norms in the imposition of some entirely new social order, right? And, and so those people, the you know phenomena like the Soviet Union were just societies entirely designed by people like that. Even Lenin said, "This is." I learned this from that Adam Curtis documentary, Pandora's Box. I'll put it in the bibliography because it's it's actually a great exposition of these tendencies we're talking about. But uh, but you know, like Lenin said at, at some point fairly early on, he wasn't alive for that long after the Bolshevik Revolution, that you know the Bolsheviks just really weren't in control. It was really like the engineers. Um, so so that's you have to understand that as a distinct as a distinct social form, a distinct like type of you know type of logic that organizes societies and a distinct psychology and institutional reality, i.e. portions of the academy that produce that, that way of seeing society to understand supposedly like left authoritarianism, right? There, there's just really this sense, like what these people in this paper would have us believe 
is that realities like the Soviet Union were times that there's this distinct psychology that is left-wing authoritarianism that they're just now measuring in scientific terms and that we should understand historical phenomena like the Soviet Union as times when a bunch of people with this distinct psychology got together and took everything, you know, took absolute power, took everything away from everybody else. And we're like, get ready for hell, motherfuckers. We're left authoritarians and you're about to live in our world. And, you know, it's just like not real because then the next, you know, the next tribe you have to understand is the strong men. And this really isn't all that complex. Um, you want to read a book about it, I would recommend The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin by Masha Geshen. Uh, we talked about this in the Genocidal Mystics episode. But really, I think that the best way to understand these folks at the, you know, like the level with the greatest explanatory power is the first couple episodes of this podcast, The Biology of the Right-Left Divide, is describing exactly these people. It's describing the people most prone to group aggression in service of hierarchy. Uh, you know, and these are these are the people who made the Soviet Union what it was, and these are the people who make contemporary Russia what it is. These are the people who drag you into the basement and put the electrodes on you or just shoot you or whatever. These are the cops, right? These are the people in America who we just called the cops, you know, but they're also the people at the grassroots level who are like patrolling the U.S.-Mexico border on their own or, or whatever. But, but these types of people, I like to call them left authoritarians is obviously ridiculous. They, they're just like, they, they are the people who would score the highest the people who the people who maintained social order in Stalinist Russia are the people within that society who would have scored the highest on the right wing authoritarianism psychometric scale. You know, the, the, they're, they're not left wing authoritarians at all. And, and this paper's inability to differentiate these basic realities like the distinct psychology of somebody who supports like a left authoritarian program uh, like actual political program and then you know like an actual institutional like crushing monolithic institutional reality populated by little gray men as the phrasing so often goes in the soviet case because there just really is no better way to describe those guys you know, the, the inability to distinguish between those realities and then the inability to see that you live in a society where violence is absolutely central, but instead you're like, well, who likes violence? We should, we should analyze that aberrant pathological psychology like that. You just like, if you cannot, if you cannot make at least that much sense I just don't know in what sense you expect you should expect people to think you have some like unique insights into reality or whatever. Um, so, yeah, so there's those guys. There's the strong men. And then and then, of course, there's the narcissists who, if I was being a little more fair, I guess I would just call the politicians. We do have a word for these people. And, and that's that's the word. Um but, you know, trying to understand, because I think that there are the occasional rare people who seek this type of power 
who aren't just mostly focused on self-aggrandization and a sense of their own power, but mo most of them are. And uh, a great book to read about this is Gary Lackman's Dark Star Rising, which uh, specifically documents, you know, the many sort of like points of very conspicuous overlap between Donald Trump and other aspects of contemporary right-wing thinking and like just guru trips and weird new age nonsense in general. Um, but, you know, but like it just makes the basic point that the insane narcissistic cult leader and the politician are the same fucking guy, you know, like they really are. And um, I, I think more and more people, I, I think that actually Donald Trump really did help give a lot more people a sense that that was true, that the best way to understand a lot of systems of power is not as we have been so assiduously trained to do purely in terms of like some kind of sweeping ideological construct, but just in terms of the psychology of the people who have power. And that narcissism is in particular a very helpful frame for understanding who they are and what they do. You know, I think like just to anecdotally, I think to to understand the the raw prevalence of this in our own society. Um, I'm somebody who never, ever was beguiled by Barack Obama. I never thought he would be anything other than what he was. I was kind of appalled by all the people who did, and especially because so many of them were, were close to me. But um but even I, for all of my outright hostility towards, you know, people like him, um, he, I, I think that it really took me a while uh, after he left office to really like get to this place of feeling this like this visceral sense of just like cold terror at how good he was at talking about things in these like sweeping elevated ways that kind of gave everybody this sense of unity um, that were just utterly disconnected, like utterly disconnected from anything he actually did, where the very fact that, you know, it's not like surprising or even really all that interesting that a United States president would, you know, he like, doubled oil and gas drilling uh not because of not because he was powerless but you know because he was like writing executive orders expediting uh their the construction of the infrastructure necessary for that doubling to occur but like while simultaneously making speeches where he's like i refuse to condemn future generations to a planet that's beyond fixing you know it's like it's not really interesting that a politician would deport more people than any president before, you know, whatever, bail out the banks, uh, massively expand surveillance, drop more bombs than Bush, all the rest. But, you know, like the ways in which he was able to just like at some point his rhetorical style and how earnest it seems and how just like humane and sincere it seems should become fucking chilling it you know like you you should have this like deep visceral sense of like wow that is a 
crazy motherfucker who is like absolutely detached from anybody's suffering or anything that's happening in the real world who will just literally say anything and be any way necessary to gain power right and uh and how like like what he said just had no connection with reality at all because he's that kind of guy because he's the kind of guy who just lies to people and and we have to understand any historical institutional you know reality where a society achieved some state we might call left authoritarianism in these terms where I I don't want to say that you know a Stalin or whoever let's not say that they simply don't believe in their ideology I think that would engender more confusion than not but let's just say that they're people with exceptionally narrow frames of awareness who primarily are oriented towards their own sense of power and achievement and significance and whatever else and you know and and so like you just absolutely and this is like some pretty common sense stuff like it it shouldn't it wouldn't come as a shock if you heard a lay person saying like yeah i just don't really trust politicians seems like they just kind of say whatever to get power but you know it's true and, and you have to keep that in mind or else you make this crazy, tragic, absurd mistake of saying, oh, left left authoritarianism, you know, that's that's like what Stalin believed. Right. And all the people, you know, it just doesn't just doesn't. And all the all the people talking back to me in my class, they're like mini Stalins. Right. Um, yeah. So so that's that's my that's my tripartite scheme for how societies in general, whether we're talking about ancient Egypt and the narcissist is like, let's get a bunch of slaves to carve, you know, a 50 foot version of my own face in stone are like, you know, uh, the Soviet Union or the United States of America. You know, we, we can have these fascinating political psychology conversations about, there's right-wing authoritarianism, but is there also a left authoritarianism where they like believe in coercion? But to me, like by any definition of, of authoritarianism, again, invoking this notion of coercion as central to it, there's also just liberal authoritarianism. Like we live in a liberal authoritarian society. And, and you know, that is supposedly a contradiction uh, on some fundamental level, but again, I'm, uh, you know, like what liberalism to me means is a massively hierarchical arrangement in which, a, instead of there being like literally one guy who has a decision-making power, and there's a, a group of elites. You know, it's like the elites. Liberalism is the elite saying we want to have a role in making the decisions in this extremely authoritarian society we live in. And, uh, you know, but but like if we use a metric like who has the bigger gulag, the Soviet Union or the United States, it's you know, it's us like we're an authoritarian society. Um, So so but yeah, but so that's my scheme for for how that works, for how society after society, this is, you know, the sense in which Nazis and like Nazi Germany and Stalinist Russia 
converged on so many of the same features. This is, you know, this is why society after society looks so much alike is because whatever the babble of the day is, these are the people, these three tribes, the technocrats, the strongmen, and the narcissists who actually shape power in society after society. An understanding you will not find in this paper, where you will instead find three constructs after they do all their statistical tests and they, you know, or, you know, like their kind of like initial exploratory process of model construction, wherein they do a number of tests and they refine the model and they, you know, examine how many factors, how many factors are there to left-wing authoritarianism? The authors weren't sure. They thought maybe it was one or two or three or four or five. And they finally, after much statistical refinement, decided that left-wing authoritarianism is a three-factor model. Um, and so he here it is, folks. Of the three factors, Costello et al. say... Factor one, which we termed anti-hierarchical aggression, reflects the belief that those currently in power should be punished, the established order should be overthrown, and that extreme actions such as political violence are justifiable to achieve these aims. Factor two, which we termed anti-conventionalism, reflects the rejection of traditional values, a moral absolutism concerning progressive values, and concomitant dismissal of conservatives as inherently immoral, and a need for political homogeneity in one's social environment. Lastly, Factor 3, which we termed top-down censorship, reflects preferences for the use of governmental and institutional authority to quash opposition and bar offensive and intolerant speech. Yeah, no, no joke. That's, that's really the three factors. Um, and you might be kind of already having this fairly obvious objection, which is like, there's a lot of people who want some stuff taken off Facebook who aren't left authoritarians, right? There's a lot of liberals who, who don't want like what they perceive as COVID misinformation or who don't want, you know, I mean, I mean, like there's, there's a lot. And then, and then the right is, of course, we'll, we'll talk more about this whole, like the speech element of all this, 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 I think, very massively conceptually separable aspect of people shouting down their professors or whatever. <laughs> I, think, I think that and Stalinism don't necessarily have a ton in common. But if you were to read this paper, you know, you would be subject to the notion that these are all just instances of left authoritarianism, which they're psychologically figuring out for us. Um, but yeah, you know, like you might think these these factors really describe very different kinds of people and and i would i would earnestly concur um and and to give a sense of it i'm going to just actually cuz so often with the psychometric stuff you know you can just have like you i think you could just like wander through a wilderness of theoretical debate about what it all means and if it means anything and and all the rest and and not really have as good of an understanding of it 
as you would if you just actually read the questions that are being administered to people. So, so we're going to do that. We're going to read. We're going to read a bunch of the questions from all three of these factors, and I, I'm going to kind of respond to some of them to illustrate how much like I don't feel like this is a unitary construct at all. So first, here we are in anti-hierarchical aggression, which it turns out like I am just definitely an anti-hierarchical aggressor. You know, the rich should be stripped of their belongings and status. Rich people should be forced to give up virtually all of their wealth. If I could remake society, I would put people who currently have the most privilege at the very bottom. America would be better off if all the rich people were at the bottom of the social ladder. When the tables are turned on the oppressors at the top of society, I will enjoy watching them suffer the violence that they have inflicted on so many others. Most rich Wall Street executives deserve to be thrown in prison. No, they deserve to be shot, right? There should be hasty tribunals. I mean, you know, so these are all like, but these questions, I don't know. I mean, to be fair, the right-wing authoritarianism scale asks kind of similar questions. And then, you know, it has predictive power for a whole bunch of like other domains of social and political perception. Um, so, you know, like I, I don't want to like totally dismiss the validity of these questions offhand, but I feel like to some extent these really just are measuring somebody's politics more than their political psychology. These are just, these are just like basic political questions. Um, and I, yeah, I, I I don't know, he, but he, but here, here's where it gets, where I, I will do, like, I will just answer. I, I would seriously agree as strongly as possible. Whatever their Likert scale was, I would be, like, on the far margins of agreement with all of these questions, except for, I, I do want to point out, uh, there's a couple, you know, like, like they, they just go on and on like this, and they're all, like, you know, if a few of the worst Republican politicians were assassinated, it wouldn't be the end of the world. And, you know, like, it, it wouldn't. Um, but then uh, they get into this one that I just I think is so, so strange. Uh, certain elements in our society must be made to pay for the violence of their ancestors. I'm just like, what the fuck? That's not the same thing as wanting to take money away from rich people. Um, but then here we are in the anti-conventionalism questions. And so it's things like anyone who opposes gay marriage must be homophobic. Deep down, just about all conservatives are racist, sexist, and homophobic. Uh, People who are who are truly worried about terrorism should shift their focus to the nut jobs on the far right. I mean, come the fuck on. That's just, you know, when was the last time you heard of about a leftist mass shooting? Uh, but then the old fashioned ways and old fashioned values need to be abolished. Radical and progressive moral values can save our society. All political conservatives are fools. I cannot imagine myself becoming friends with a political conservative. Conservatives are morally inferior to liberals, um, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and these are ones where I'm like, I like this is antithetical to the way that I think, right? Like, 
this is more, these aren't left authoritarians. It's liberals they're thinking of who are just like categorically dismissing people who they don't agree with. I pride myself on being able to talk to pretty much anybody. You know, it's not like I didn't grow up in like the middle class mansion in like Seattle or whatever. Like I've just been around people with radically divergent perceptions of the world my whole life. And I don't know what politics is supposed to be if you're like, I literally won't talk to those people. It's like, you know, I often have this quip. If you don't have a plan to exterminate somebody, you have to have a plan to talk to them, you know, and like, I just don't, I just don't relate to this. And I don't think that a lot of people with similar politics to me feel this way at all. But like, you know, that there's this question of power. It's a totally different thing. It's a totally different thing to have like a vengeful, a vengeful politics towards people who actually have been destroying the world and actually have all the power in these situations and have caused so much suffering. Uh, you know, that that's different than being like the guy down the street from me who believes the crazy conspiracy theories and, you know, like tosses around racial epithets or whatever, like that guy has to go to the death camps. You know, that's a totally, totally different way of seeing the world. Um, and, uh, and, and one of these questions I thought was actually particularly funny because it was, uh, you know, okay, so it's, you know, there's more like, it's a bunch of stuff like that. Like, I hate being around non-progressive people where I'm like, I hate being around people who would answer affirmatively to questions like that, right? Like, I really do. And sometimes I am, and it's a bummer. But then this one that I thought was just super funny was uh, I try to expose myself to conservative news sources, which, you know, obviously... They're looking for disagreement as a sign of left authoritarianism. But I literally, I don't do it as much anymore. But for like seriously years of my life, my trip was opening up in sequence Democracy Now!, CNN and Fox, just to get a sense of what the different, you know, like how the different frames were operating with the events of the day or whatever, right? Um and so, as you might expect, um, the, these questions don't necessarily strongly intercorrelate. Um, they have, for, for from this list like that I'm reading, they have the Pearson's R correlation coefficients with uh, the with like the three factors, right? So with the overall answers on uh, all the questions within a given factor. So, you know, any given question, for instance, the rich should be stripped of their belongings and status has uh, a Pearson's R presented for its own, you know, for the factor that it's in, anti-hierarchical aggression. So it's just like how strongly it predicts all the answers to the other questions that are kind of like that. But then also how strongly it predicts, uh, you know, answers to... Uh, the other two constructs. So, uh, for instance, the rich should be stripped of their belongings and status, solid 0.82 correlation with anti-hierarchical aggression with the other questions in that same construct, but then a 0.16 
correlation with anti-conventionalism and a negative uh, 0.06 correlation with the top-down censorship construct with the who wants Facebook to decide what is hate speech and have absolute power to, you know, say who gets to say what. Um, and, and and so that's not like, you know, that's like a pretty, uh, <laughs> you know, it's not like a super strong convergence here between these three, these three constructs. Um, that, that, that's a pretty like wild disparity. And, and that's, you know, that's the, the rigorous statistical justification of the statement that these aren't the same people we're talking about, that these constructs are, are really all over the map, measuring very different things that very different types of people engage in. And, you know, so just to give a sense of the, uh, the top-down censorship questions are stuff like university authorities are right to ban hateful speech from campus. I should have the right not to be exposed to offensive views. Uh, interestingly, we'll get into this in a second. The, the, now the official position of the opinion page of the New York Times uh, to succeed, a workplace must ensure that its employees feel safe from criticism. I don't know where you work. Uh, we must line up behind strong leaders who all have the will to stamp out prejudice and intolerance. You know, stuff like that. Um, Fox News, right-wing talk radio, and other conservative media outlets should be prohibiting from broadcasting their hateful views. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, these these are all just like talking about different people as far as I'm concerned. Well, here we are in 2021, and this is the Democrats America, and the far-left agenda has been promoted for the last several years, and it's been kowtowed to by so many on the left and so many Democrats who are in political office, and the cancel culture mob has gained so much strength that they are able to cancel people that have concepts that really are based on logic and reason and reality. So this is this other thing that left authoritarianism means that, you know, that we have now, we've now gotten out of this paper. Um, so on, on one hand, left authoritarianism is Stalinism. On the other hand, left authoritarianism is just like a militant faction like the Weathermen or whoever. On the other hand, left authoritarianism is supposedly like a distinct psychology you know, there's some psychology out there that's like the avid supporter of the authoritarian regime. And, but then, but then it turns out that left authoritarianism is also when these people's students talk back to them or when somebody wants Facebook to take something down. Um, and that's a lot. That's a, that's a hyper complex, uh, massively heterogeneous construct you got going on there at, at that point <laughs> i don't know what what one hopes to get out of statistically analyzing this construct through through some questionnaire results you know i i but but here i guess we have to do the thing of the inevitable descent into arguably the most overproduced cultural form at the moment which is like the discussion of, you know, the censorious left and cancel culture and, and all the rest. And um, I, I, I guess I'll start with the disclaimer that 
it's not like I don't know what they're talking about. And I, it's not like I'm a fan or anything. Um, and if you, you know, if you want, if you want to hear me like angrily talk about it for six hours or something like that, probably more, uh, you know, check out the nature nurture death spiral series, uh, where I do that thing of tracing the academic origins of some of the weird mythologies and modes of reasoning that are very prevalent in our culture right now. And that suck, you know, that are that are awful. And um, and I actually really do know about their their sort of like most insidious and difficult manifestations because I spend, you know, I've spent my life in like social movements and counterculture on the West Coast. And this stuff has really like killed a lot of joy and a lot of freedom and a lot of human possibility. You know, it really has. Um but the reason that I'm opposed to it, like I said, I've, I've, I've experienced like it's really intense manifestations, you know, like where the people are convinced that your music is secretly fascism and they're like coming to your show to beat you up or, you know, where you worked for months and months to put together, you know, a, a, a strategy to shut down the fossil fuel industry and then you you can't actually have the meeting. You're, you're at the big regional meeting that you worked forever to put together. And it falls apart because somebody literally says something about gender. And then everything turns into a breakout session of like navel gazing about like, you know, gender dynamics within your organizing or whatever. Um, you know, I, I, I know. I know it's there and it's bad. And I would say that like what I've focused on in in talking about it, like the reason that I care about it and that I oppose it is because it uh, it destroys social movements because it makes it impossible because all that chaos and nonsense and gibberish. It's super funny to watch right wingers try to do what I feel like I somewhat successfully did in uh, Nature Nurture Death Spiral, um, where, where they're trying to document the like the evolution out of academia of this style of reasoning into the culture at large, or you know, really as as Daniel pointed out, there was a in a, a migration into academia from the street. You know, back when identity politics was, if not cool, at least really oppositional. Um, and then and academics were like, oh, that's cool. Let's let's exploit that and make it nonsense in service of hierarchy. Um, and then how that migrated out of like those realms of supposedly left wing academia that are just not about any kind of strategic thinking or concrete useful knowledge or, you know, like opposed to making generalizations and inferences about the human experience of any kind you know, how it migrated out into culture. And you can watch right-wingers, like, try to characterize this process, but just be too stupid to get it right. With Jordan Peterson, the, uh, you know, the stupid person, smart person, being really, like, the the primary exemplar with, with his babble about uh, postmodern Marxism or Marxist postmodernists or whatever the term he keeps using is, 
and he'll have these lists of people where he's like, these are postmodern Marxists. <laughs> it's like, it's literally like Robin D'Angelo, you know, and I'm like, no, that's not Marxism, Jordan Peterson. That's a, that's a corporate diversity and, <laughs> and inclusion training you're thinking of, like turned into a book. Um, you know, <laughs> and likewise, I know, I know that I'm just ranting at this point. There's no way to talk about this stuff without ranting a little bit. But the way that people like that talk about, uh, like the Jordan Petersons and the Sam Harrises and the Brett Weinsteins of the world seriously have the audacity to call what they're doing the intellectual dark web. And I'm like, yeah, people who are actually on the dark web are risking having their lives shattered right? They're risking horrors. Um, and what you're risking is having somebody else uh, on the same social media platform you're on say that what you're doing is oppression or like having your students talk back to you or whatever, or, you know, or maybe occasionally very, very rarely getting fired. But it's really noteworthy that the people who do are people who are somewhat acquiescent at the outset. Like if you're a professor who gets fired almost like almost like 100% guarantee you weren't like yeah I'm a crazy right winger I'll say whatever I want when you got when you became a subject of controversy right it's often more the case that you were really acquiescent and then the pro that's how those processes work um but you know I mean like it's like no no Jordan Peterson that's not the dark web you're on all day that's actually Twitter um you know <laughs> And just this sense that that people have that they are like bravely navigating this hyper repressive environment when what's actually happening is that there's never been a phase of our culture where you actually got to just say whatever you wanted without consequences, without like fear of very significant repression. Right. Like, I mean, well, yeah, just. Okay, just to like, just to make this point even further about how ridiculous it is to, to use this terminology, like my website has like articles I wrote for the Earth First Journal where I talk about how to shut down oil pipelines and blockade trains, right? And that, that actually carries like a real risk of horrible things happening to me, of me spending my remaining days avoiding being raped or trying to avoid being raped in a cage, right? You know, but I would never, I would never condescend to the shockingly poor taste and, you know, just like overt immaturity of being like, what's up, kids? I'm Captain Dangerous. You want to go on the danger ride? You know, like, come find me on the intellectual dark web. And these people are, are like, what's really happening is that there was never a phase where you just got to say whatever you wanted without the risk of something truly horrible happening to you. And they're just experiencing a society where now they are not as insulated from that as they used to be, right? Where they used to be in these very privileged echelons where they mostly got to not worry about getting beat up for what they said or just getting pushback of any kind. But now there's the internet and so they do. And so, you know, there's like this very, very, very confused dialogue about all this stuff happening. I think that 
there's there's a real sense in which there's this cultural evolutionary process towards an increasingly lowered threshold for claims of harm from language and stuff like that and this like and this like post-truth academic notion that has come to predominate so many realms of our culture that there's like decisive epistemic breaches. This is this is what actual critical theory, like critical race theory or whatever is. It's not a discussion of all the racist atrocities the society has committed. That's real. And that's just like, <laughs> that's just like engaging with reality. But, you know, it's the claim that there's decisive epistemic breaches between people with different experiences of socialization these decisive epistemic breaches happen to break down along incredibly crude broad statistical lines such that for instance um you know it's like all black people supposedly know everything there is to know about the criminal justice system and policing and white people just don't even if they've like been to prison you know it's just like this incoherent nonsense um but it, you know it's the specific claim that people don't have any sort of like common understanding that they can ever come to that I which you know it's like this bizarre thing where it's essentially the claim that there's just no point in anybody talking at all really that's ultimately what that means um but that that you know that has like really come to dominate certain realms certain realms of our culture it's super important if you feel like this stuff is everywhere it's important to just know that it's it's not. It's actually just in your bubble, right? You know, but the bubble is big, but it is certainly not like the, the entire society. And it's harmful and painful because it destroys social movements. But I, I also think there's actually like, there's a real desperate need to push back on it for um for other reasons like i I think it it does really harm some people right i i have met people uh who have been like truly kind of destroyed by these processes um at the like social and psychological level and you know generally speaking i touched on this in return to the circle where it's it's a way of reasoning that really prioritizes avoidance of uh, painful or difficult stimuli. And that is not actually a path towards like an in, uh, sort of like healthy, engaged mode of existence with the world. That's a path towards, it's like anything, you know, it's, it, you, it becomes very path dependent. And the more, the more difficult stimulus you avoid, the more fragile you become and really like the more trapped in your trauma you become. That's like the avoidance is, is like the characteristic. That's what it is to be traumatized by something, right? It's not the crazy painful experience. It's whether you're able to actually have the experience in the full scope of all its, you know, pain and terror and uh and kind of like come and then when you have it loses its power over you but if you become traumatized by it what that means is that on some level you're psychologically avoiding it and so you know like i do think that this culture of like lowering thresholds of claims of harm and, and you know like harm increasingly 
being like wrought on the symbolic plane rather than in physical reality is super insidious and needs to be pushed back on. Um, but there's also just this very real sense in which the people who are using those styles mostly just don't have any power at all, really. It's getting increasingly incorporated into the liberal like into the liberal toolkit for maintaining power. But then at that point, it's like that. It's just like that's it illustrates how it's not left authoritarianism. You know, it ain't left authoritarianism if Joe Biden's doing it. It's liberal authoritarianism at that point. Um, and the, the obvious point can be made that um, that there's never there's just like a total disproportionality between the sense that people have that 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 reality that like students yelling at their teachers or like people literally like talking back on Twitter to the New York Times or whatever is like, you know, supposedly a stage in an evolutionary sequence that that leads us all to the death camps or whatever. You know, that's, it's just like ridiculous. The the inability to distinguish between like a hostile or oppositional sort of like rhetorical style and real forms of hard power that shut down speech like violence, you know, wrought by say the police um, or, or just like the, the capacity for censorship that entities like Twitter have, the inability to conceptually segregate those realms is just insane and it's you know highly evident in this paper but i don't know you know i don't know if we really actually can identify a distinctly like left authoritarian orientation to censorship this is again where this is just kind of this is this reality where it's like different political tribes are just kind of pointing out the darkness in other political tribes and they're not exactly wrong but it's also a darkness that lives very much in their own tribe, you know? And so like the, like the liberal, the liberal censoriousness is actually associated with power and the right wing censoriousness is actually associated with power. And I'm sure there's some leftists out there who want to censor some things, but they just don't have any power at all. And it doesn't really seem like they're taking any plausible measures to get it, you know. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, there's just like this insane level of psychological projection happening with some of this stuff where the right is actually trying to like, you know, take books out of library and impose criminal penalties on teachers for examining subjects that they would prefer to leave unexamined. Um, and they're, they're like literally doing it all in the name of free speech, you know? Um, but, but this other, like, what's fascinating is that this other sort of like type of, you know, this other motivation for shutting down speech of being like, I deserve to live in a world where nobody says anything that upsets me has actually really started to become a primary tenant of like, you know, like, let's keep in mind that the New York Times is like the, the people who led us into the Vietnam and the Iraq wars, 
who are currently reporting on the crime wave and how we need more police. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say these people are not left authoritarians, but they're starting to embrace this very logic um, as evidenced by, and I know that this is very much, this is so last week ago, uh, you know, this is so last week on the internet, but uh, there is this, you know, New York Times op-ed that was amazing, this is why I get on the internet is to is to revel in the pylons that come when people say things that are this stupid. But uh, so the New York Times, the the actual like editorial board, this wasn't like a guest piece, wrote this incredible op-ed called uh, America has a free speech problem. And it starts out like this, friends. They say. For all the tolerance and enlightenment that modern society claims, Americans are losing hold of a fundamental right as citizens of a free country. The right to speak their minds and voice their opinions in public without fear of being shamed or shunned. <laughs> so obviously this right never, ever, ever, ever existed. And in most in most of America, in my historical experience, and you know, still today, it's like you really have to, like, what you actually have to worry about expressing the political opinions that I have is violence, right? You know, like, like I've been in protests that have been shot at, and where people have been almost run over, and and my experience of just being in most like small towns in America or whatever is like. You really can't say what I believe without worrying about somebody trying to physically hurt you. And but there has definitely never been a time in any culture ever, and, and there shouldn't be, by the way. Like it's not we would not be living in an ideal world were it true. There is but there has never been a time when you could just say whatever without fear of being shamed or shunned. And so what I want what is so interesting about this is like now the libs have come full circle, right? Where a, a few years ago, this is exact like exactly this opinion was how they characterized the like illiberal left, you know, the growing tide of students who don't believe in free speech anymore is that, you know, they would characterize it as uh, people believing that discourse should be free of emotional distress, that we should somehow manage to talk about all these bewilderingly complex social and political realities without upsetting anybody. And isn't that so ridiculous? Um, but, but, you know, but now that's like that's the official position of the New York Times editorial board, which, again, I'm, you know, I'm just saying to illustrate that I don't know if we can really segregate like a distinct variety of censoriousness that belongs to the left. I'm just really not sure. And interestingly, there's a there's a kind of decent book about it. They get a lot of stuff wrong. Um, but, uh, but it's, it's worth checking out, um, called the coddling of the American mind, how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure, uh, where they, they examine precisely, you know, this sense of, of that whole cultural reality of like it, you know, censoriousness being 
a manifestation of a belief that people should just be protected from uh, painful or difficult or averse stimuli altogether. And they talk about how that is a really bad idea. Um, and it's, you know, for the same reasons that I mentioned, because it just doesn't, if your motivation, paradoxical as it may be, if your motivation is to diminish human suffering, you have to give people the capacity to come to terms with the unbearable realities of suffering and the universe we inhabit. Uh, and so they say in this book, Research on post-traumatic growth shows that most people report becoming stronger or better in some way after suffering through a traumatic experience. It doesn't mean we should stop protecting young people from potential trauma, but it does mean that the culture of safetyism is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of human nature and the dynamics of trauma and recovery. It is vital that people who have survived violence become habituated to ordinary cues and reminders woven into the fabric of daily life. Avoiding triggers is a symptom of PTSD, not a treatment for it. And that's exactly right. That's exactly the point. Um, but, you know, interestingly, like this book was written in 2017, I think, uh, to, to talk about, you know, the growing illiberal tide among students. But that paragraph and the rest of this book would be a pr precisely a refutation of what the New York Times is now saying. So, you know, I mean, it's like liberal left and right wing attempts at censorship all kind of seem the same to me. They all involve claiming some harm, you know, that transcends the speech itself. Um, and, and then they all just kind of go about using some method of coercion to shut it down. But in the case of like leftists in this society, those methods of coercion typically max out at some shouting, some disruption and some shouting, and, you know, and some like hostile statements on the internet. And, uh, and, and then they never go beyond like the occasional awkward punch or, you know, like a burrito or a milkshake thrown in your direction. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just, I think ex assessing this as a distinct psychology and being like, who are these people who believe that speech should be shut down is just like really willful, much like, you know, much like asking who are these people who believe that your politics might involve a little violence, that that violence is a real determinant of power. And if you take your politics seriously at all, you might have to come to terms with that. Um, you know, asking who those people are who believe in violence or asking who these people are who believe in censorship just you know it requires a very very fundamental willful i think ignorance of what's happening in the society in like the dominant society that you support so like the final thing that i'll say about all that is that you know on the on the practical level of if you're somebody who's like, yeah, but like, still, like, you know, there is this cultural force, and it makes doing so many things so much harder, if not simply impossible. I, you know, like, the, the thing that I'll just always say is that I, I ha 
always in watching that cultural force take over, capture so much of the dynamics. There, there was just never a time when I wasn't willing to confront it. And it's not like anything all that awful happened. And, and I think that the, uh, the sense that you like just can't do anything anymore because all these people will just come say it's oppression and shut it down is just like obviously empirically untrue if you look at the world around you. I mean, especially if you look at the multi-million dollar media contracts that people who just say that all day have, you know, and, and I think that like a thing that always really bothered me in watching these dynamics play out is that so many people in a social situation where they emerge think that it's crazy nonsense or whatever, but so few of them are willing to say so in an explicit way in, you know, like to actually like engage it while it's happening. And so like, I would just say if you're somebody who is trying to do something and feels like you're being shut down by the illiberal left, I, I would just ask like, really, are you though? Or in some sense, are you participating in this process? Like, you know, again, these, these are the very, the very like softest forms of power being exercised in pursuit of these particular, this particular subset of beliefs that, you know, some speech shouldn't be allowed or some people shouldn't get to talk or whatever. And I'm, and I'm really like, like, how seriously do you take yourself or what you're doing if you're not willing to have like a, a conflict, like a war of words with some people who spent too long at Evergreen or went to a particularly brutal diversity and equity training and are now kind of going around trying to subject everybody else to the same trauma or whatever, you know, like, like you have to, like, whatever position you have in this world, you're going to have to fight for it. And if you're not willing to fight on that level, like how seriously should we take the position? So, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I, censorship, it's around. I don't think there's a distinct left-wing authoritarian variant of it, really. There's a distinct cultural phenomenon that's, you know, that's occurring, that's associated with that to some degree. But I really think that the way to confront it is just to actually confront it and to make sense and to show that having a politics and a worldview that allows people from different backgrounds to actually be able to talk to one another is the only way that we can ever confront the myriad horrors that that style of politics is supposedly a response to, right? Like we're never going to get anybody out of cages if we don't have a way for people of all social backgrounds to see a common ethical point that it's our duty to take people out of the cages that they are in in the criminal justice system in the United States of America, just for instance, you know. So so that's that whole rant. We we had to do as again, as much as I know it's like the most overabundant cultural form in existence to be like, let's examine crazy leftists and how they want everybody to stop talking about anything. We had to go there because the paper went there. And so, you know, that's, this is very much a way that, uh, that 
conceptual segregation of some variety would have been extremely helpful, but we are in this massive unitary construct of left-wing authoritarianism, so there it is. Okay, so we have descended very far into the inscrutable murky depths of some chaos or another following the reasoning of this paper. So if what the paper claims left-wing authoritarianism is isn't right, if it's not Stalinism, but also the weatherman, but also somebody who wants something taken off of Facebook or who yells back at a professor, you know, like, okay, so, so what is it? Um, we we got to ask uh, on this really basic level, does it have meaning as a distinct politics. And, and, and I think it does. I, I think, you know, we can, we can just say really cursorily that it's a form of egalitarianism, but it's not, you know, at least like in theory, it's a form of egalitarianism that doesn't involve an egalitarianism of power, but involves like a material egalitarianism. And while societies like the Soviet Union just simply never were left even in that sense you know they really just were ultimately pretty like normal good old despotic societies uh this is coherent like this is a coherent political notion and, and one that i think has to some extent seen instantiation in the real world in societies like say cuba or you know venezuela um where and it's impossible to know what the dynamics of those societies would be like if geopolitics were different you know if you could have that revolution everywhere i just don't know to what extent they would have the level of coercion and uh and hierarchy in the you know in like the decision making apparatus um because it's absolutely in this world it's absolutely necessary for those societies to have like a fairly despotic quality just to even continue to exist they would you know they would just get destroyed and there would be some fruit company or something from the united states uh you know with a a very thin veneer of of local you know of, of autonomous political order uh, running things. So, you know, so that's, that's coherent. That, those, that makes sense as a political idea. And, um, it's, you know, it's one we can see in the world. And then, but then this, there's this other question we have to ask about left authoritarianism, which is like, is there a distinct psychology of somebody who supports a society like that, a, a despotic society but, you know, with greater equality than we experience here in the United States, you know, no noting that that Cuba has better health outcomes than we have here in the most affluent society on Earth. Um, and I think that there probably is. And at the end of the episode, the big reveal will be to talk about to conceptually segregate right and left authoritarianism as a psychological process uh, in, a, in a particular way. But, you know, I think that probably, you know, my claim will be that there's, there is an appeal to different types of people involved here. And I don't know exactly what 
characterizes the left authoritarian psychology. But I will say that I strongly suspect there are, you know, the psychometrics that in some fashion or another measure like a, a rigid style of thinking or like an absolute certainty about one's beliefs, I think would tend to predict left authoritarianism as well as right authoritarianism, you know, like there's a cognitive rigidity. Um, but I also think that there, we have to look at two different things where, you know, if, if we're, what we're talking about is historic phenomena, where it was like, say, 1965 and well established that in the Soviet Union, there was such a thing as a gulag or whatever, but there was like somebody in the West who was like, I'm a fervent Stalinist. Um, we, we could be talking about, I think there's two separable dimensions that are still not like this distinct left-wing authoritarian psychology we're sort of tentatively positing um, and that, that have to be acknowledged to be at play in some of these situations. And in and, and one of these, just, you know, I know that this isn't going to blow anybody's minds, except it's excluded from a lot of analysis. It's like one of those things where you don't feel clever saying it, but you have to note that a lot of people are acting like it's not true. You know, over and over again in this podcast, we get to these places where it's like, you know, the... The biology of the right-left divide, like, okay, what I'm ultimately saying is that fear is what's wrong with our societies and our politics. And it's like, I know that when you were 12 and your uncle smoked weed with you for the first time, he said the same thing. But, but you know, like, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to say it sounds all that, like, uh, devastatingly smart and sophisticated, but there's a lot of analysis out there that just doesn't examine that at all. You know, all these things like that, um, you know, saying that there's the same types of people in all major social groups, is like not mind blowing, also completely absent from a lot of analysis. So, so one of these elements we have to look at of this, like, of this like person who supports despotic regimes, but it's not really a reflection of a distinct left psychology. It's seriously just like a pragmatic calculation about power, like just a sense that things might not be perfect, but it's still better than alternatives, right? Like just, just really that. And here again, I'm gonna note, that as much as some liberal might think like, yeah, somebody who supported a despotic, supposedly leftist regime in, you know, somewhere in the depths of the 20th century, like, I don't relate to that at all, is then going to pivot, is then going to turn 180 degrees and open up Facebook or Twitter or whatever and tell you that you have to vote for a monster even though you don't want to because there's an even worse monster that's going to come into power if you don't and that this is the most important election of our lives and we know the guy's a rapist with dementia who really is more personally responsible for mass incarceration in the Iraq war than almost anybody else who's still actually an institutional power but you got to ignore all that and just vote for the guy you know like that's just like, that is literally the psychology of voting. It's the same thing. Like it's, it, it's the same thing. 
You know, a lot of people just make these pragmatic calculations that those in power are a long way from perfect, but it's still better to further their agendas than to let some other thing happen. And so, like, a great illustration of this, I think, I, I just thought that this was kind of fascinating, is this, in these terms, is this book uh, that's published by AK Press. It's part of a little imprint they have that just documents, like, really adventurous lives or whatever, classically a thing, if we're talking about psychology and politics, classically a thing you'd find in an anarchist publisher. Um but this guy wasn't an anarchist. He was a Marxist, and he lived a life of incredible adventure. His name was uh, Jan Valton, and he wrote a book called Out of the Night, uh, which documents his many incredible revolutionary adventures. He was there in, oh God, what was it? Like 1905, was it? Whenever it was that, I mean... That was also Russia. I can't remember, but there was some major like mar attempt at a Marxist revolution in Germany in the early 20th century. He was there for that. He uh, traveled the world as an operative for Stalin. He was like a you know like a, an assassin. Um, he was in the a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. He can he got out by convincing his captors that he had converted to Nazism. He like asked for a copy of Mein Kampf and stuff. Did this whole like elaborate method acting thing over the over like a really long period of time and was eventually like, yo, you gotta let me out of here so I can go infiltrate my old comrade cells and destroy them in the name of the Fuhrer who I now fervently support. And it was all just a total lie. And then he just like, you know, he just ghosted as it were, as the kids say these days. And uh, it's, it's an amazing, amazing book. You should totally read it. But, uh, but what's really interesting to note for our purposes is that he at some point like he was being chased by both the nazi secret police and the the kgb because like i said he was like an international assassin for stalin except that stalin won or you know the kgb wanted him to kill somebody who had previously been in their employ and it was at this point that he really reflected that the system of power that he served just actually didn't in any sense really further the political objectives that it claimed to that he embraced. And so he just didn't do what he was supposed to do. And then they were trying to kill him. But this was like the mid 20th century. It wasn't as if there wasn't already a gulag and people didn't know about it, right? It wasn't as if there hadn't already been some engineered famines and whatnot. You know, like there was there was plenty to look at and be like, oh, the Soviet Union is not really what it says it is. It's actually something very bad. Um, but, you know, he was able to endure a whole bunch of those contradictions, but he did simply have a threshold. There was a point he was not willing to go beyond with the accumulation of those contradictions. So that's just like, I just think that's interesting to 
to note as a reality as we, you know, we look at the history of, of despotic regimes that claim to be leftist. And then we look at, you know, the people who supported them. To some extent, I just think they're making the same calculation as people are always making in politics about power. And you can just see how, you know, that can be like a principled commitment up to a point, And that point is really going to vary for different people. And then people find it unbearable. And another book that I wanted to mention, because, you know, again, like we're an, another thing that we're looking at in these cases is content free group psychology. And I think that if there, there's a distinct psychology of left authoritarianism, it might to some extent just be a, lef a leftist psychology in general, but one that is more prone to group dynamics, right? That is just more, more susceptible to being captured by some cult-like process or another. Uh, and so I wanted to mention this book that Esri over at the Emancipation Network, who, uh, you know, I think the, the Emancipation Network very much instantiates in the real world, uh, this idea I have of, you know, the alter academy of there being a need for a social sciences born in the reality of, of trying to engineer different political systems in the actual world. Um, but so it's this book, Bounded Choice, True Believers in Charismatic Cults by Janja Lalik. And it's, uh, What's fascinating about this book, friends, is that she was part of a Marxist clique in the Bay Area that had very cult-like dynamics, uh, the DWP, can't remember what the D stands for, WP, as you might imagine, Workers' Party, um, but half the book is her talking about the, you know, the evolution and the trajectory of the DWP and her and others' experiences within it. And half the book is her talking about the New Age Heaven's Gate cult that all drank, you know, the poison to go ascend into the sky and catch the comet to wherever it is they thought they were from. And, you know, what she's describing is how the dynamics of these two groups are utterly, utterly the same. Just to give a sample paragraph, uh, you know, that, that like talks about the parallels really directly. I took such exquisite pleasure in reading this book. Uh, Self-renunciation was important in both groups. In Heaven's Gate, the ideal was the genderless, emotionless, next-level creature. In the DWP, it was the steeled cadre, the Bolshevik without emotion, obsessed with the cause of building the party. Members hold themselves to a standard that said, what would my older member have me do? Or what would a good Bolshevik do? Both believed that the whole was greater than the sum of its parts and that individualism was counter to their goals. Members in both groups detested individual thinking and criticized any expression of individualism. Independent activity was not allowed in either group. In one group, independent action was considered human and therefore despicable. In the other, it was regarded as factionalizing, undermining, anti-party, and despicable bourgeois behavior. And, and just to be clear, in case you're not uh, in, in case you're not quite this level of a connoisseur of cult obscurata, uh, she, the reason she says, you know, 
the 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 detested condition is one of humanness in heaven's gate is because they believed they were all from outer space whatever but yeah that emphasis she places on conformity i think is really crucial and she talks about how uh, processes of internal critique are really really central to maintaining that conformity and that is like there, you know, there's like a real cross-cultural universality at work here where it's not just like technological mass societies or anything like that. You know, like uh, Benedict's Patterns of Culture describes the like incessant gnawing paranoia and just like endless episodes of accusatory fervor that uh, consumed, you know, the Dobu society in the Pacific that she studies and characterizes in her book. And, you know, like you, you can like in society after society, that's, that's often, I always play the game when I read uh, ethnographies or just like about other literature about different cultures. I always play the game of like, would I like to live here at all? Would I like to live here better than where I live, et cetera, et cetera. And so often that's the tripping point, right? Is you're like, okay, yeah, we're growing some yams, you know, like we're doing some Swidening agriculture. It doesn't sound terrible, a little fishing, like, sure. I think I'd like to live in a structure like that, you know, like, okay, let's, you know, that's a weird cosmology like they all are. I guess I could get into that belief system. And then the point where it's like, oh, this sounds like a bummer is uh, is like society after society just has these really strong dynamics of accusing people of witchcraft of some kind or another or just some process of, you know, of accusation and aggression towards somebody who supposedly like violates the group standards in some way or another um but you know but in a lot of like more traditional societies it will center on uh any like unfortunate event like a bad harvest or a death or whatever uh, has some magical explanation and there's somebody to go look for who must be responsible and in Bounded Choice, she talks about these processes um, of like internal critique, whatever, uh, and how psychologically transformative they are, she says. And she's quoting, uh, she's quoting somebody she interviewed who was a DWP member. Uh, the D stands for Democratic, of course, I, I should have guessed. In our group, criticism, self-criticism used daily was the primary method of control. I remember so clearly one of the first sessions that targeted me, sitting in a circle being berated and accused of misdeeds by the group. I felt like my head was literally being yanked from my shoulders, turned around 180 degrees and set down backwards. I stopped seeing, stopped thinking, stopped speaking my mind. In that experience, I began to surrender my vision, my mind, my personal experience, and my soul, and to internalize the idea that due to my middle-class background, my own thoughts, ideas, and gut reactions were at best suspect, and at worst, downright evil. And yeah, so I think the left authoritarian psychology is largely one that is both left 
but that is really pretty susceptible to those kind of processes. And, you know, something that's noteworthy that I've observed that I don't have any kind of rigorous justification for, but that I want to say is that what I've seen a lot of is actually that the people who become the really like aggressive, awful, you know, sort of like versions of, you know, of themselves, like really pursuing the the cultural framework that's like constantly interdicting what anybody's saying or doing and claiming its oppression in one fashion or another very often people who were subject to something like that themselves right and it seems like then they just kind of go and like give that pain and that nonsense to everybody around them and i think that you know we we can definitely i'm not sure exactly how to measure it but there's but that is what it is is that it's like a greater susceptibility to those kinds of group processes um and we would maybe want to know still like that still leaves us with this puzzle where it's like okay but you know that's like one version of a process that induces like conformity and conventionalism and behavioral rigidity. And so, we're, you know, we're still left asking if, you know, if, the, if that's a core distinction supposedly between right and left psychology, like what are we really talking about? What, what does all this mean? And, and here's what I would say. Here's like kind of my final thesis statement about what left authoritarianism kind of really is and making sense of it and conceptually segregating it from the the right authoritarianism we've talked about so much um, is that I, I think that it starts it starts with a you know a general like leftist orientation with a desire for a more egalitarian social order and here's what's crucial is that I believe that the the psychological motivations, the pro, let's say like the process of engaging uh, right wing politics, is a a core is is both a core like psychological predisposition towards uh, conventionalism and conformity, but also towards aggression, right? In particular, like you know, outgroup aggression. Um, and that we, we get the whole package in, in the, in the right wing form of authoritarianism and, but that because these behaviors and like psychological modes and like forms of perception are so deeply correlated, I think we could say one invokes the other. Right. If you, if you're in a group and you're like, let's go aggress against another group you're going to tend towards a greater degree of behavioral cohesion and sort of like internal hierarchy of some kind or another. Um, and if you are saying, let's have a whole bunch of conventionalism and conformity, then you're going to end up achieving that end through greater and greater levels of aggression. And that that is more like the way to conceptually segregate them is like the way in because that is how left authoritarian psychology works and how that process uh, develops is that it's not motivated at all 
by a, a desire for outgroup aggression. It's motivated by the opposite, right? By this sense of, you know, uniting humanity in this great transcendent framework. Um, but that people get really into the psychology of conformity in pursuit of that end. And again, to some extent, this is just like a rational calculation about the nature of power and, you know, and about how to actually get things done. Um, but that, it, you know, but also that some people are more prone to these group dynamics that some people, if they're sitting in a circle, and somebody and you know with like their their compatriots and it's like oh it's time to talk about how we're all equally responsible for the horrors that we see in this world you know some people might be like that seems kind of ridiculous but some people are going to go along for that ride especially if they experience like scrutiny or ostracization of some kind from the group if there's a a sense of collective condemnation then they're psychology is just totally going to be reconfigured um but you know but even if there's not there's just some people i think who once they sort of embrace that logic of of conventionalism or like you know adherence to group norms for the sake of adherence to group norms um that because of the deeply correlated nature of uh, aggression and behavioral rigidity because at the level of you know wh whatever like neural hormonal you know like all the different processes that produce the the you know like i said before like we can think of these as like software right as like loading a program and and really like loading loading the uh the conventionalism program also means loading the aggression program it's the same program or you know or not but it's like it, they invoke one another um that that's how that works is that people the, the approach is different but the results are largely identical at least on some level where you approach you approach these left authoritarian scenarios not with a desire for outgroup aggression, but just with a desire for like people to achieve this level of cohesion and conformity and the aggression comes along for the ride, even though it's still asymmetrical on some level, you know, like, like, like we've already said, the actual societies where left authoritarianism occurred were just, you know, the, the actual coercion and violence was mostly done by other people. But at that level of like a struggle session in Mao's China, right, which is not the same thing as like a death camp. It's just not. It's not, you know, it's not the Soviet gulag or the Chinese, you know, prison apparatus uh, back when they were, you know, more avowedly separatist communists or today. Um, but but it you know it's like a level of aggression there's some aggression there and that's how to think about it i think that that's the conceptual distinction we'll make you approach right-wing authoritarianism with a desire for aggression and conventionalism you approach left authoritarianism with a desire for conventionalism it evokes the it it, it generates the psychology of aggression that's that's what i'm that's what i'm claiming 
and I'm sticking with it, even if you would never, ever, ever guess that such a thing were true by reading this goddamn paper. They're trying to find people and ruin them. It's not a good faith conversation happening on Twitter. If the left was ever gonna come after Dr. Seuss, it'd be... If the left was ever gonna come after Dr. Seuss, it'd be... I'll keep the rest of us. It's a feminine form of if the left so was ever gonna... <laughs> okay, and we're we're basically done. I'm not going to torture y'all anymore with this, or not very much more. But I just wanted to point out a few other things from this paper that I thought were so hilarious that I actually laughed out loud about when I read them. <laughs> you know, so so the first is like having generated this this left-wing authoritarianism scale they're like well let's ask people some other questions and you know just see how it correlates with the scale and uh so one of them is like this list of six questions most of which are just about again whether you think violence in politics might have something to do with one another or not but then uh support for violent collective action during protests in the summer of 2020 and participation in violence during said protests. So again, this is about, I think we are in about as great a level of conceptual clarity and coherence as we are when we are talking to the people who used to be the KGB and are now in hyper-capitalist Russia, the FSB, and we're like, so what's it like to be a left-wing authoritarian? Where like the, you know, it's like now, now we're we're going to Minneapolis in 2020, and and we're talking to the kids in front of the burning police station, and we're like, so left authoritarianism, that's your thing, huh? Um, you know, <laughs> I just don't think, I mean anybody you know i guess if you're in academia and you never if you never go to a riot you just wouldn't know this sort of thing i guess but so many people know that the like the trajectory of these things is such that you get these in in the george floyd uprisings in 2020 so much of the really spectacular like damage actually just really occurred in the first couple weeks of it and that's often how these things go and it's because in that initial phase of reaction there's a bunch of people who are just like from around the neighborhood who don't have like a history of explicit political engagement of any kind who come out and you know tend to be more militant you i mean you know admittedly usually in collaboration with anarchists and others who are kind of like vocationally committed to finding out where people have gotten to that point and helping them in their efforts. But, um, but yeah, you know, like, like just so many people who participate in the like really destructive, like the rioting phase of things are, are not people. It's like, it's not like you can't say they're left authoritarians. It's just like kind of hard to say, what their politics are other than they're super aware that they live in misery while others have, you know, great abundance and that they hate the fucking police. I mean, but like, but this is like in like places where I grew up, it was like people might believe that, you know, the government is aliens and they might 
smoke a lot of meth and say a bunch of racist shit or whatever. But like everybody hated the police because we were all from a place where like you got fucked with by, you know, like the police just were our enemy. Um, and and that's that's not left authoritarianism. That's just not liking getting fucked with by the police. So so that, you know, that was like another realm where I was like, wow, man, these guys, these guys got to hit the street a little more often. Um, and then, but then the, this other one that I'm going to read to you is they, they asked some questions examining whether uh, certain types of social media use correlated with left-wing authoritarianism. Intolerance of difference is a fundamental component of authoritarianism. As such, highly authoritarian individuals should tend to prefer ideologically homogenous social media environments. To test this hypothesis, we assessed the frequency with which participants had blocked, unfriended, or hidden someone on social media for posting too much political content, posting political content that participants disagreed with, posting political content that participants found offensive, arguing about political issues with participants or someone's participants know, et cetera, et cetera. And, I, and I'm like, so just, you know, we're just throwing it all out there. We're just, we're just, you know, to understand left-wing authoritarianism, you have to understand Stalin. You have to understand your students yelling at you in class. You have to understand Jan Valton and his global adventures, um, you know, and his like withstanding torture in the concentration camps. But you also got to know about people who like to block people on social media, which I just I don't know where we are anymore, friends. I don't know what any of this means. Um, but yeah, like again, I said, I, I wanted to I wanted to use a this paper as a guide to talking about what on earth left authoritarianism might be if it exists and in what senses and, and what it is and how we can understand it in psychological terms and in terms of the biology of aggression a little better. Uh, but I also just kind of wanted to illustrate the ways in which I feel the academy has absolutely failed us in clarifying the nature of political situations such that we could be effective political actors um, and see the dynamics of power that are actually in our lives and, you know, do something about them. And, you know, it's like another way to illustrate this is not only do you not find, say, like the, the strong men, technocrats and narcissists framework anywhere within all this academic publishing about systems of power and I certainly don't think you'll find, uh, you know, you won't find the biology of the right-left divide or to whatever extent it's all that conceptually dazzling. This, uh, this claim of mine that the way into LWA is exclusively through the conformity dimension and the aggression gets invoked in the process. Um, but, like, tell me if this exists, because this is just, like, the most basic reality of our daily of our lives that like really matters for future outcomes is like, tell me if there's an academic paper that just says those in power are probably incapable of integrating an understanding of the ecological crisis and acting on it. 
like like psychologically not capable of doing that, which is so clearly the case. Like that is just such a fundamental reality. But for all this publishing about political systems and what they mean and 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 how to understand them, that fact is just absent. And that I don't think reflects a total like lack of analytical power to get to that very simple screamingly self-evident conclusion that reflects ideological discipline and you know and and it's real and we're going to talk about it more in our next outlined episode i will release part two of my interview with daniel of what is politics before then but we will talk about that and so many more things and i will offer i don't get to do this all the time friends but this will be one of those moments where i think it's always useful to characterize situations like make clear what are the salient variables and you know kind of present it as a a broad foundation for uh strategic imperatives but this will be a time uh, for varieties of scientific revolution in which i present an explicit strategic thesis an explicit proposal for what we might do so stay tuned and until that time Thank you so much for going on this journey with me and climbing the tree of knowledge a little bit higher every time. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. It brings me great wonder and meaning and pleasure and all the rest. Um, joy and exertion, you know. Um, so until that time, thanks so much for listening and we'll talk again soon. Take care. Love to you all. We'll keep the rest of us enslaved.